guys. Welcome to Cinema Rabbit Trails. I'm joined, of course, by my my fellow podcast friends here, Jerry and David. Hey. Hello. So our film today, we were watching the film Signs uh, with Mel Gibson and Joaquin Phoenix. I think that's how you pronounce it, mm-hmm. right? No. Mm-hmm. Okay. Got that one. Uh, so anyway, the film, let me just tell you a quick uh, plot line and then we'll... I'm going to ask these guys some questions about it, but this opens up with uh, Mel Gibson, whose character is named Graham, and he was a former priest. Um, anyway, he had lost his wife, and it opens up on their at their farmhouse, and uh, he has a dream, and you see this continually through the movie of it slowly piecing together what happened to his wife, and his wife had died uh, through a car accident. Um, and that's the reason why he, he fell from the faith. Uh, but during this time, he finds out that he, they go out in the cornfield that they have behind their house, find out that the, the corn is turned over, and when you zoom back into the sky, you see, looking down, a symbol, and it looks to be an alien symbol. So the, the first half of the film just focuses on, really, is this a prank? Is this real, or is it a hoax? Uh, and so they go through this period, um, but also it, it just shows the the uh, experience in the sense of loss that both Graham and his family is experiencing through this time. Uh, so that's a quick rundown of that. Would you, do you guys have anything to add on that? No, just watch the movie. It's, it's well yeah, worth it. it's an excellent, well-made film uh, by M. Night Shyamalan. That's the director. The score is very well done as well. Yes. Yeah. So we may get around to the music yes. a little bit here. I'd like to hear you guys' thoughts. Uh, but, of course, one big theme of this film is loss, and it's the loss of his wife, but also the loss of a mother, right? Because the two kids don't have a mother figure in their life now. Mm-hmm. Um, so does loss, it, it, just looking at him, you see the way Graham is, is responding to uh, the events with the alien activity in almost a suspicious way, like he's not really sure if it's actually happening or not. So does the fact that he lost someone and just loss in general, is, does that make us paranoid or suspicious of things more so than maybe those who experience less loss in their life? I mean, personally, I think it depends on the nature of the loss, how, your, your relation to the person you lost, and even in what setting you lost them. I mean, I think it depends on a lot of that as far as the effect it has to that degree. Um, I don't think loss by nature alone will do that but you know you saw that he loved his wife they had two kids very young and uh, he he lost her very suddenly and he actually had to watch he actually watched her die and he couldn't do anything to help her and then her last words made no sense seemed like rambling like there wasn't even value to him value in those words to him it seemed like like she actually said and tell Graham like I'm right here so it seemed like she wasn't. She didn't even realize she was talking to him, and that would feel like, God, you stole something from me. Like she should have been talking to me, and it seemed like she didn't even realize it. So that th- that nature, I think, all those elements combined would make anyone very, very skeptical or cynical. Hmm. It also just could be that the older that we get, we have a great capacity to become more cynical. As children, we're very more. Um, naively so willing to believe anything and just any kind of authority figure we just believe 
but the older we get, we become more cynical of like, oh, that's because we've seen it before where things aren't true. We've been lied to. We've been by our own experiences. So, and some of that could just be our own cynicism where we try to have control of our own little world. So we're like, no, I, that, that's not it. Mm-hmm. And so I think it, from that, just from just the question alone, it could just be a an age thing. Mm. Okay, very interesting. So if it's uh, speaking of age then, so talking about the kids then, how they're experiencing it. We know how Graham is taking it, but but with the kids experiencing the loss of their mother, first of all, what were your first impressions of, of Bo and Morgan, just as kids? Not you just as kids, but them as kids. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, Bo's the older one, right? The, no, Bo's the uh, Bo's smallest. the little girl. Okay, yeah. Mark, so, uh, Morgan's funny because he just... He's a kid who just seems to know what's going on. Like, he's just very aware of himself, and Morgan is just this very supportive and just uh, faithful, you know, precious little girl there. So they're, they're a lot of fun, but you can just see how Morgan's just constantly asking questions and he's thinking about things. Mm-hmm. And he's a 10-year-old, was he probably 10? He's probably I 10. Think so. he's, just, he's a 10-year-old guy trying to figure out how his world works, and I think there's more questions we'll get to later, but um, he's reaching some conclusions that, are hard for a 10 year old to kind of wrestle with but in a 10 year old's mind this is the only way I can deal with the loss of my mother and mm. how does my father come to the picture of that and so yeah yeah, uh, yeah. so I think Bo even though in the in the context of the film the mom died only six months ago Bo is simply she's just too young to really have felt a strong effect she, she's more affected by how everyone else has been affected by her death um, she wasn't directly just like, like, oh, I understand that my mom is dead and what that actually means. Um, she was, it was just kind of a fact of life to her. But, um, <clears throat> as far as Morgan goes, I think he's, um, just kind of off the bat as you first learn that, um, Graham's wife has passed. So Morgan's mom has passed. Um, and the dad kind of retreats. He just kind of disappears. And so he's more confiding in his uncle who's, uh, his uncle is certainly the one who's uh, more of a father figure to him in these past yeah. six months. He kind of transfers that because Graham kind of just checks he, out. He kind of checked mm-hmm. out. And as far as the inquisitiveness, I agree with you. He's an inquisitive kid, but I think that's also a response because now his dad's gone, who told him how the world worked. Now he doesn't have anyone telling mm-hmm. him how the world works, and now he's just like, okay, mm-hmm. now I've got to figure this out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he had almost a, a stubbornness too, like a hard headedness. Mm-hmm. Him, uh, um, just demanding things, you know, yeah. very. Because uh, that's the only way he's going to get answers. Yeah. That's right. Exactly. Yeah. That's good. Very good. Yeah. And so the kid, you you just notice through all of this too, the way that kids just seem to latch on to the alien activity for some reason. Like they use the uh, Bo's baby monitor, and there starts to be these unusual sounds on it, and uh, Graham and Meryl just just blow it off like, oh, that's just static. It's white no it's just some strange noise from some other baby monitor but they start to this for some reason both of them are like i hear it there's something there there's something alien in the the language and the voice so why are they so what do you think they're so curious is there something to do with with loss in that or are they just natural curiosity in kids i think it's natural curiosity in kids um plus an ease to believe something like that which i actually think Maybe maybe I'm reading too much into it, but I think there was a purpose behind it being a baby monitor of all things that actually catches that signal mm-hmm. and they start relying on to actually know whether or not it's there. 
those those the aliens are there. Like that's what they regularly use throughout the film now to check is there an alien in the vicinity. It took a baby monitor. It took a a child like a childlike <laughs> sensibility. <laughs> exactly. And so um, I think both the the kids were the embodiment of that. The baby monitor uh, monitor was a symbol of that exact same mm. thing. Yeah, that's a that's a really good. So, but then of course it took the adults to step up and actually protect from the danger. So there's there's time yes. there's there's the differences. You need childlike belief, childlike faith, but then as you get older, there's also responsibility and a call to action that comes with that. Hmm. Yeah, that's great. Anything on that? Nope, other than that. Great. Okay. Uh, now, of course, the other the other problem Graham is having, he's not just dealing with uh, the loss of his wife and. Uh, a somewhat broken family, just communication, especially between him and Morgan, but especially with uh, people still calling him father. So again, he had left the priesthood, and even then, you keep coming, people keep coming and calling him father, and keep saying, "Stop calling me that." He even gets stuck at the pharmacy counter talking to that girl who still wants to confess her sins, even though he keeps saying, "Tracy, I'm not a father anymore." <laughs> she still insists on it and gives us she gives him the whole spiel. <laughs> and it's only for like swearing. She's like, "I think I sweared like what 41 times." No, it's 42. <laughs> <laughs> so is this just? A, I mean, you, you look at that and you think they clearly know what's going on. Like most of them know that he had left the priesthood. So is this just simply out of habit, or could it be something more? Like could it? be that they're trying to hope in something. Uh, th- I was going to say, when things fall apart, because, yeah, it could be habit, like, you know, I would call my football coach, you know, Coach Davis, or, you know, uh, my English teacher was Mr. Inman, and he told me, like, David, I'm not your teacher anymore. So I was like, okay, I can't call you Brett yet, so I'll call you Inman, and that I could transition to Brett. So it took some... So there's <laughs> that. I would say there's that, but I think people are looking for someone to hold on to. And so this was someone who I knew I could confide in and someone I could trust. And that's hard to let go when, you know, that person is still there. You're like, oh, it's still that person I can trust. And so part of it could just be, you know, like you said, it's habit. But it's just this is a pillar of strength for me to run to. Mm. And I I refuse to let that pillar of strength go because this is what I run to. And that's why, as you you, you talked about for a podcast, when stuff like this is happening, you know, with 9-11, you know, people were starting to fill in churches and people were going to synagogues because they're looking, what do I, my little world that I've created here, going to my job, my 401k, what I'm doing with, you know, all of your world is falling apart there. You need something else stronger to run to. What do you run to? Mm -hmm. And usually, you know, we'll run to, we we want to run to God, but then we will use the church or a priest as like, Hey, this is my pillar of strength embodied in somebody I can run to. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. Nothing to add on that. But you agree. Yeah. Well, we get to the point where it's, it, especially that first half of the film again, that we're, they're just dealing with, is this real or is it just a hoax? At some point they think it's just a bunch of brothers causing trouble. And it turns out things, the, the way that even the cornfield is laid down, it's just way too organized and, and uh, smooth for it to be just uh, these young, crazy, rambunctious boys. So they find out that it could be very, very much for real. So uh, their smartphones and YouTube wasn't as big of a deal as it was now as it was then. So they probably would even worried about it if it was today. <laughs> yeah, I think this was made in what, like 2002, 2002. or something, yeah, yes. something like that. Yeah. So you get to this point where where you learn not only did Graham leave the priesthood, but he he also is really losing. 
uh, his grasp on faith and uh, in God and really disbelieving him, even even angry at him. So, but his response to the whole alien activity, was he just being skeptical about it? Or was there a, was his disbelief something reflecting his wrestling with God? Oh, yeah. Now, I think in his own mind, if you're speaking for, for the character's perspective, he's thinking, I'm guarding my children from something that is likely a hoax. I don't want them believing this crap. You know, that's, and that's, that's a valid argument to make for himself. But at the same time, there does appear to be something going on. And he's refusing to even take a look at it and then explain it to his children. That would be the the actual fulfillment of that true perspective. I want to protect my kids from this. I want to make sure that I have the right explanation. As opposed to just block it all. Block it all out. That's not exactly what we're supposed to do unless it's something actually evil. Which in this case, it's just fact of what was happening. That's not necessarily... That's it's amoral. Mm-hmm. So there wasn't... Yeah. So kind of both, but it was definitely mm-hmm. reflective of him wrestling with God because if he was um, still walking in his faith, that would have been his perspective. Just understand what's what's going on in God's world so I can explain it to my children. Yeah. That's good. Anything on that? All I would say, and this, is, this could be opening up a whole other conversation, but like the existence of aliens in God's world, like how does that... Whole, that's a whole other That's thing. a whole other yeah. conversation there, but, you know... I'm just saying, like, you know, it's like, where does, you know, that fit in with faith? And, you know, there's talks about, you know, alien activity even being just demonic activity because it's a distraction from, you know, what God's doing here because we're always looking at that pillar of strength I mentioned. Wouldn't it be nice to be like, some people are like, oh, I don't, have to, it's not God's out there, aliens are out there. So they're the ones who are dictating how the world is working. And it's just, it's another opportunity for us to kind of have control over something where it's like, mm-hmm. you know, I'm not accountable for anything. I am the master of my own destiny. And yeah. anyway, yeah. like I said, that's a whole other can of worms. Definitely a thing would be worth exploring, but not right now. <laughs> so Graham opens up this question as they're watching the TV, him and Meryl, uh, about what's going on uh, with the alien invasion and all of that. And uh, they start talking, Graham brings up, he talks about that there are two pe- there are people in two groups in life. Number one, he says, there's those who believe in more than luck, so those who believe in, in, in miracles and uh, trying fi- finding evidence for something beyond this life. Um, so faith. And then you have the second group of people who believe in pure luck and that things just happen this way. Now both are afraid. They, they may have reason to fear, but uh, they have a distinct approach on both ends. So, uh, but one thing that Graham did was he talked about this to Merrill, and Merrill said how he, Graham asked Merrill, "Do you feel consoled now? Like, do you feel like there may be more to this than than nothing else?" And and Merrill says, "Yeah, I still have hope." And then you have Graham. It turns around to Graham, and Graham uh, says, "There's no one with us. We're all alone." And in that moment, you see his brokenness of of wrestling with the loss, but also you know, believing that, that God is not with him or his family. He's just just somebody who lost hope. So here's a question, and this is something that, that there are many people who believe about this, but um, when it comes to faith, some claim that it's just about comf- consolation, that it's just about comfort, trying to find some solid foundation in a, in a chaotic world, mm-hmm. and that there's not much more to it. It just makes you feel better about what's going on. So, kind of playing devil's advocate here, how is faith not just consolation? How would you guys answer that? 
The only reason you'd think that faith is only consolation is if you're only seeing a believer, a Christian, in snippets and not the same person. You're seeing, you're having one-off moments with a, with a Christian here and there. Or maybe you had one experience with a Christian in the past, like, that's just stupid. And you, and you go with that premise. Uh, if you actually watch a believer for years on end, you will see growth. And that is not a result of just comfort. That is a result of the work of something greater than that person at work in that person. So you cannot honestly say that that is just consolation when it comes to faith, mm-hmm. if you're actually paying attention. Mm-hmm. So you're saying attentiveness to their walk of faith. Uh, I mean, it proves that it's beyond beyond just a source of comfort. Exactly. Actually, their their life. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And how'd you put it? Consolation of what? How's faith not just consolation? I was going to say, we all have a, a faith or a consolation, if you will. Like We're all trying to figure out how, as kids, we're trying to figure out how does the world work. Mm-hmm. And we all have an explanation, a worldview, if you will, of how that operates. And some people want to say there is no truth, there is no God, there is no... So what's your faith in? It's like, it's going to be in what I can conceive to be put together. So we're all going to have a consolation of this is how I see the universe fitting together. Mm-hmm. And the person who would not have faith is the person who's ruling out that anything supernatural exists, you know, a naturalist outside the physical realm, which they're going to have a crisis of faith at one point. It's like, how do you explain things that are not explainable? And these other things where it's like, that doesn't happen just by random coincidence. Now, I'm not saying I completely just says, oh, you should believe in everything, but it's like, all right, from what I can experience, from what truth I see out there, what seems like a, a, rost, a rational, rational <laughs> conclusion on things. And so faith is really shouldn't be this shot in the dark, as many times people have portrayed it to be, and people act like it is. But it's that, you know, you could say it's that consolation, but it's like, in my pursuit of truth, and believing that there's a consistency behind the universe, what do I have to conclude is the most rational explanation for, you know, why I feel bad when I do terrible things, you know, the guilt that I have, the intelligent design of the universe. I mean, these are all things that come together. It's like, okay, I have faith that there is a God and he's intelligent and that there's a morality embedded in me. If this is all random chance, this just seems kind of odd that it's just random if this doesn't have any purpose and meaning behind it. So so what I'm saying, all I have to say is the consolation is how do you see the world fitting together? Yeah. And faith is another way of saying this is how I see the world fit together. And everybody has faith in something. It just mm-hmm. depends on what your faith is built in. Yeah, and on the note of what your faith is built in, just something that I'm just going to kind of go off on a rabbit trail with this thought right there. Um, Just one thing that you're talking about going from kind of the cynicism of just looking at just the natural world. Okay, well, let's take a look at the natural world when it comes to interpersonal relationships as well and look at just the truth of what Scripture actually shows. Whenever someone wrongs you, or or, or, sorry, whenever you wrong someone, Mm -hmm. do you feel better when you... Just when you don't say anything to them, you just actually do something to try to uh, to uh, make that up. It's like, oh, here's a gift. Like here, I'm just going to buy this for you and give this to you, and that will make up for it. Do you feel like that's does, does that actually solve it? Because that's what most faiths are built on. Mm-hmm. <laughs> They're built on that premise. Oh, I wronged God, mm-hmm. so here's a gift, God, and hopefully that will cover it. Here's this good work that will cover it. Mm-hmm. Uh, that that usually I, I've never met anyone who felt. Like there was reconciliation through just not asking for anything and just giving it to the other person. But whenever you actually go to that person you wronged and ask for forgiveness 
And not only do they forgive you, they reconcile with you, as in they completely forget that that even happened and the relationship that you once had with them is restored to its original state before you wronged them. That's whenever it feels good again. It's not through some act you did towards something else. So if you're talking about going with the natural order and actually recognizing how things work to uh, to inform your beliefs, whether that is atheist, agnostic, or anything else, the only one that seems to actually make sense with interpersonal is Christianity because that is the exact uh, symbol. That is all that Christianity is built on is we wrong God and then we ask for his forgiveness and he forgives us and reconciles us to him because that's how it works when it comes to relationships as well. And, and that's, let me just jump off that real quick and we'll get back to your question, get back to you, move on to the questions there. But you're talking about as, as if reconciliation is the goal. That only happens if God is interpersonal, someone you can have a relationship with. Most exactly. religions, um, like for Islam, for example, God is not someone you get to know. Yep. And it's this idea, and I think it's you know there's a good truth to it, that God is holy, we are not. So how can something unholy be in the presence of something that's holy? And when, when I mean I holy, I know that's a very big word, but something that's just pure and good beyond measure. Yeah. And we are not that way. And yeah. so like to, the, to you know someone who's of that faith or another faith that God is interpersonal like Hinduism, it's like, Reconciliation isn't even a thing. It's about, am I in a, it, it, are things good? Am I, have I pacified the judgment that was supposed to be upon me now? Mm-hmm. So it's not a matter of, I have a relationship with God. It's that, hey, God's not going to kill me. Yeah. Great. Yeah. And he's going to reward me for good stuff. I mean, it's, you can have some of a relationship, but it's, it is not yeah. nearly as personal. It is not nearly as personal, if at all. And relating this, yeah, exactly, and relating this back to the film, you see that the end goal, the the result of the story of the film, is not about uh, Graham actually like, oh, okay, I was wrong, I've been proved wrong, now I must do something to uh, to make up for this time that I've hated God. Hmm. It's no, all that all that it is is that he's restored back to faith. Now we can argue about all that because he can make up for in purgatory. He's Catholic, sure. he's, he's Catholic. right? Yeah, and Catholicism. <laughs> so. We have our own issues with Catholicism a little bit, but. Uh, the the general idea of just no the goal is to be restored to faith and ask for forgiveness. It's not oh I need to make up for this. Like there's something instinctive about this. I don't know if M Night Shyamalan is Christian Catholic or anything like that. I don't know, but um, certainly just the fact that this film rings to be his best film and resonated with a very very large audience stands down as a, one of his classics. Um, just speaks to, I mean, that's the whole point of this podcast is that we talk about movies that have timeless themes, even if the movie itself isn't timeless. This appears to be a timeless movie, so what makes it timeless? It rings with something in our inner being that is true, and you see the result here. The, the, the instinctive end goal of the film was not about Graham uh, doing something to win his favor back with God after falling out with him. It was him simply getting his faith restored. That was the only goal. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, uh, David, you talked about a pillar of strength earlier when we were talking about why people kept calling Graham father. Yeah. So one of those references you made was about church and synagogues, so, uh, people flocking to that as their pillar of strength. Mm-hmm. So eh, when when we flock to churches, especially the general, for example, with 9-11, yep. uh, why do we do that in disaster? Is it is it kind of a mass hysteria where we're just a, an exaggerated response to just trying to find something that's higher than us, or could there be something more there that we we desire? No. That's just a <laughs> object I want to make sure that's an objective question. I'm not just trying to get a point across. Yeah. So yeah. 
we all want something to hold on to. I mean, mm-hmm. I think we recognize that we... <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm laughing because I'm just thinking of the Joker. Because he's like, I took your little world and I turned it all on itself. The point is, though, uh, that's the way my mind works. The point is, though, we, we create these worlds for ourselves. And we have the illusion that I am the master of, you know, my world, how it's going, and I'm in control. And then we get a doctor's note. Then someone has a conversation with us. We get a phone call, and it just breaks our whole function of how we thought the world was working at. And I think when it comes to moments of 9-11, something like that is just so beyond our comprehension and control. We're like, I have the world I have built, I have nothing to engage this with, to even begin to process this. And, you know, where do I... So we're all looking for those pillars of strength there. And I think the the cynic in us wants to not have any hope because we've been burned by hope before. But we all long for those pillars of strength, something that we know is real and that's not going to be moved. And I think that's what we were really resonating with Secondhand Lines in our last podcast was he's seeing his two... um, Great grand, uh, great uncles, and just seeing this, these are pillars of strength. This is what manhood's the made of the stuff of manhood, and this is what doesn't change. This is you know, it's real, and that's why he gravitated towards that. So, that's what I'd say is we're looking for that pillar of strength, something to run to when everything's falling apart. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's good. Anything on that? No, nothing bad. Okay, well, good. The last thing I wanted to talk about, and I think we all kind of have noticed this about the film, but but about the, the emphasis on just fatherhood and you see obviously this whole film is about it centers around Graham who's having a crisis of faith because of his loss but one th- one interesting thing you notice is there's a part where Morgan they're all down in the basement hiding from the aliens who are now in their house and uh, they're they're shining their lights around trying to find Morgan again and he's by a coal chute and a alien hand manages to reach in and grab him and so they scramble getting him out of there, but it scares Morgan so much. And Morgan has an asthma attack. He he's has asthma. We see his issue with asthma through the whole film. So he has an asthma attack. They don't have the medicine with them, and they can't go out and get it because of the aliens. So you have this moment where uh, Graham is just holding his son and getting his son to try and match his breathing and slow his breathing down so uh, so that he doesn't stop breathing. And... You hear Graham saying, believe it's going to pass. Don't be afraid. He keeps telling you these things. So you see, and what do you see, like, so more specifically, you see Graham in that moment getting angry at God because he's already lost his wife. So now it's like, oh no, not again. And so you hear him mutter under his breath, I hate you, talking to God. And earlier, before they went down into the basement, Morgan said the same thing about Graham, he said, I hate you. Felt like he hadn't been a close father figure or anything like that. So what other, do you, do you see a correlation between the two I hate you's or what else can, can you guys see there? Because I know you point, you noticed some things. Yeah, there's definitely a correlation, but there's certainly some difference as well. Um, I mean, I, I guess in the end you kind of have uh, the same result though. Um, I mean, you have Graham, who's a earthly, fallible father. So that's that's problem number one, which kind of disrupts some of the correlation. Because it, but there is still Morgan saying "I hate you" to his father, and Graham saying "I hate you" to his heavenly father. Mm-hmm. Um, and while Graham is fallible, God is infallible, and you see how 
the, the reason you see in the film how God the Father is infallible is through you have Bo who has had this just weird quirk about her the entire film uh, th- through most of her entire childhood of like drinking water for a little bit and then it's like has a complaint seems it thinks it tastes weird or is contaminated or something puts the glass up and asks for another one mm-hmm. and it's and so there's glasses all around the house and that ends up being what is needed and just through happenstance quote unquote quote, air quotes here uh, happenstance coincidence uh, that it actually uh, that's what ends up defeating the aliens mm-hmm. um, and protecting them and uh, same thing with the words the seemingly pointless words that Graham's wife said as she was dying to him uh, so all these things you see that God is God is outside of time God the Father is outside of time and he has been working for this moment uh, and uh, while Graham has failed God the Father has been consistent and whereas in Morgan's case, his dad did fail. And so he had, I, I never say it's good to say I hate your father, but from his perspective, he had valid reason to. But at the same time, you saw Morgan right after he said, I hate you, he, go, he runs to his dad to give him a hug because he sees his dad is falling apart. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's certainly some difference there, whereas Graham was a fallible human being who needed that. Um, right. But it also shows that when a son really runs to his father... Even whenever he's hating him, if he actually runs to his father, father will cannot help but actually a good father cannot help but actually embrace his son and actually comfort him. And you see the same result with Graham and his heavenly father. Mm-hmm. He eventually runs to his heavenly father, and you see God act. I remember us talking um, a while ago about someone from that scene. First of all, the scene where he's breathing with his son is just powerful. Mm-hmm. It's a father coming through as the savior figure for his son. And I think this is what, as kids, we all dream our dad to be. That superhero that just comes and saves us. Um, but with that, um, this is a very powerful thing because Graham, this whole time, is not angry with God. He's apathetic. You don't get angry with something or someone who can't do anything about your situation. And I think this is the thing, like, he denied that God existed. And him saying, I hate you, was the first time being angry with God saying, you exist. You could have done something, and yet you didn't. And that this is just, you don't get angry with somebody who couldn't do anything. You just are just like, whatever, you know. Yeah. There's no, so you could say there's a parallel because his son is angry at his dad because he was saying, I hate you, because he recognized, or he was, in his mind, he's like, you could have done something, but you didn't. You're a terrible person, and I hate you for it. And then he runs, you know, his dad starts falling apart, and then they have this amazing embrace because he's being honest with him for the first time. And I think Graham's finally getting to the point where he's actually acknowledging, God, you're there, and I hate you because my life is not what it should have been in my summation. And I hate you because you could have prevented this, and you didn't. And everything is falling apart in my life. And I think Mm -hmm. that's so important in our lives is hating God is not... You know, we don't want to hate God, but I mean, it's better, I heard someone say, it's better to shake a fist at God than to turn your back on him. It's not like God's surprised that you're angry with him or offended that things are not in your life the way they should be or your life has been extremely difficult and a grind. But being honest with God is the first step of having a relationship because then it's like, I hate you, but I'm willing to talk to you now. And I want to find out why. Like that's where he's. That's where the relationship component comes into. Is I can have a relationship with God because I can be angry with Him, mm-hmm. and He He actually cares to hear my anger. And I come to Him because I believe He can actually do something about my situation now. Mm-hmm. 
So I think there's a lot of power with that being honest with yourself and honest with God and honest with other people because then that's where real relationship comes into play. Yeah, exactly. So I have one last question for you guys. Uh, this is a personal question for you all too. Ooh. So the one one of the things that Graham mentions as he's talking about the people in the two groups, in the one group he talks about those who uh, believe it's more than luck, but he also says uh, that they believe there are no accidents. So what situation might have you seen in your life where something seemed like an accident and actually played out to seem like it actually had purpose in it? Like for you to, to look at it and be like, wow, I thought this was meaningless and yet somehow it played out to to be something meaningful and purposeful. Anything in particular? I know I threw this at you impromptu, so. Yeah, okay. I'm actually, uh, it's, it's funny you mention this. I will try to keep this very short. Uh, yes. Today's a very actually special day. Uh, it is October 20th because today marks uh, the one year anniversary for uh, the funeral of a man I knew called Alfred mm-hmm. Bennett. I've mentioned it before the book that I wrote, but today was uh, one year ago, the funeral. And to make a long story short, uh, for two years I'd been writing the book, his stories from his life to try to get this book done. And um, about a week, year and like a week or so ago, this is when he's actually, it was the last time I saw him. He was in a hospital and I was just like, I'm going to get this book done. So I didn't get the book finished before he died, but he knew I was finishing it. And I said, Alfred, you can go. I'm going to finish this. So I had two weeks before the funeral. And so I'm working my tail off about, you know, three, four days into it. I'm like, great. I got the book done. Call my printing company. Like, let's get this started. I can't get through to him. I called about 10 times. Couldn't I get through to him? I'm on my knees. I'm just crying because I'm like, I've worked so hard, so long asking God, get help me get this done. I've been doing this for two years. I don't, I am at the finish line here do not let me stop here now and that was a moment where it was a crisis there where I was like God do not take this from me and finally I got to the point where I was like God this is in your hands if this gets finished if it doesn't get finished it's in your hands but if it's going to get done you have to get this done so talk with the printer company local they're like yeah we can print this we'll have to wait a week I'm like can we start now and they're like no it has to be a week I'm like okay fine so I get the books uh, so I get the books printed and the printing was uh, f- uh, Friday at 3 p.m. The funeral was Saturday. So two years I'd worked, and it came down to less than 24 hours of opening that box, seeing those books, and handing them out at the funeral. Now, what purpose did that serve? I'm still talking about that that last moment a year later because I was just like a moment where I had to give God control of everything. And that's just been one of the greatest lessons I've taken from that whole experience. The book, you know, I, I loved writing the book and the stories I've learned, but that lesson is like, I'm going to carry that with me for the rest of my life and talking about giving up control and just saying, God, this is in your hands and it's okay if this doesn't get done, but I believe this is something that you wanted to accomplish and you're going to accomplish your means by in ways that I can't conceive. And it's, so to me, it was just powerful of letting go of control, and that influences a lot of how I make choices today. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Thanks for sharing that with us, too. Yeah. One year. That's One crazy. year ago. So. And can you go ahead and do a shameless plug of what your book is, <laughs> title and everything? Okay. Well, it's on, uh, currently it's on Amazon. Uh, it's called uh, Being a Whole Person, Stories of Alfred Bennett. And you'll probably have to type in the whole name on Amazon, but... Um, yeah, just a neat experience, and Jerry actually got to go I, with me. Yeah, I got to go with him to the funeral. I've read the book, and it is one of my favorites. I handed it to my dad. He read it. He loves it, too. Oh, so, cool. Yeah. Um, for me, mine would be um, a little bit more 
larger swath of time. Um, swath. Swath. I like that one. <laughs> That's a fun word. It is. Swath. Um, mainly just the fact that uh, of my dad growing up without an actual father. Like, he's never met his biological dad. And seeing how that has had cause and effect after cause and effect. And even the fact that my grandfather never had a son. Mm. Like, he's had four daughters. And seeing it, like, it's just interesting to me. Um, I never actually got to see a man who had a good dad raise sons as a good dad. I never got to actually see that, uh, which is interesting to me. Um, now, I mean, maybe with some uncles and things like that, but I was not close to them, so I didn't really see that played out. And so, basically, the the uh, I, God has revealed several different things in my own life that I want to have and work on. One of them is consistency. And the fact that this has come around, this desire to actually be consistent and emulate God the Father's consistency, um, and emulate that at the same time, he's showing me how my dad's not having, my my dad not having a biological dad, um, much less a good one. He never had a good father figure until after after his teens. Um, Mm -hmm. And just how that has had an effect on me without even realizing it to be able to now be studying that and explain that to other men and also at the same time wanting to be consistent finding out what career path I want to move on and how those two are actually falling in line Um, the desire to be consistent and the desire to speak to men about this is the effect of a father and this is the father you need to be looking to these are the holes in your life and I'm seeing a lot more cause and effect than I ever have when it comes to just a lot of the things going on in the world. (laughs) Uh, and I don't, I'm not trying to proclaim like it's, I I know everything. I know very, very little, but it's, um, my, my name actually, uh, means mighty warrior. And I have taken that to a more practical, fanciful extreme at times. Like I love playing with swords growing up. I was, playing with lightsabers, everything I wanted to do, I wanted to be fighting. Like, not not always, like, physical fighting, but I wanted there to be a battle. Even the music I chose was, like, battle scenes from movies and things like that. Those soundtracks, like, those were my favorite songs. Uh, it was always that. And I never realized, but I felt like there was never a fight for me to have, and I was just frustrated about that. Like, I was often, I can recall many times I was angry with God, like, God, yeah, like I want to fight something, but you're not giving me something to fight. Like I need to some to like tear something apart right now, um, and that resulted in a lot of uh, uh, bad acting sins. Out. Yeah, acting out different <laughs> things. So, good go attack part, that act, tree. Acting out. So, um, yeah, I could go into a, a lot further detail, but uh, overall, just that that main one element that my dad did not have a dad, and that. I get to actually see the effect that has and God's revealing to me how to understand that just the effects those that that not having a dad has or just the different, um, different faults in fatherhood, what results those have. And people explain that to others, uh, other men specifically is, uh, is very, very unique. So, um, uh, yeah, that's my answer. I guess. Mm. Yeah. That's so cool. And the fact that, you you had a lack in that area with fatherhood like that, or even your dad, it's just like it made it shine even brighter mm-hmm. for you. That exactly. kind of contrast. So that's really cool. Thank you for sharing your stories, guys. Yeah. So And thanks for, of course, being a part of this. 
it, it would just be me and that just wouldn't be very suitable. So, <laughs> so thank you all out there for listening. Please be sure to check out signs. Uh, do know there's, there's some frightening content in it. So it's not great for children. Um, it's PG 13, but there is some rather frightening moments. So just keep that in mind, uh, as you're seeking the film out. Um, otherwise it's a, it's an excellent film and definitely one that will, that will stay with you for some time. So, uh, thank you all for listening for sure. And, and be sure to involve, get involved on social media, leave us some comments if you'd like about, uh, some thoughts you had about our podcast, some questions, things like that. And we'd love to touch base with you there. So again, this has been Adam and joined again by Jerry and David. If you all want to say, give your own unique goodbyes. Bye. And farewell. (laughs) Adios. Y'all have a great day.